Welcome to the Gaggle Podcast, where we bring you inside the newsroom to talk Arizona politics beyond what's in print. I'm Michael Squires, the politics editor at the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. Joining me at our Arizona Capitol Bureau this week are... Dustin Gardner, I cover the state legislature. Ron Hansen, I cover the congressional delegation. Mary Jo Pitzel, I write about child welfare. This week on the Gaggle, potential candidates are continuing to size up Jeff Flake's Senate seat. We'll see who's looking to run. And a program that ensures children in lower-income families has run out of funding. We'll see what the reasons are behind that. But we start with the latest salvo in the legislature's efforts to target local laws that they don't like. Bisbee is backing off its ban on plastic bags. Say that several times quickly if you want. Because it would have lost a good chunk of its budget. Dustin, what's going on? Yeah, so this is another loss for cities and the battle for local control with the state legislature. Um, the, the city of Bisbee had an ordinance that prohibited retailers from passing out single-use plastic bags, plastic grocery bags. Um, and last year, the legislature passed a law that basically banned bag bans, um, if you will, and so they prohibited cities from having any sort of regulation on to-go containers like styrofoam, plastic bags, no fees on it, uh, paper bags. Um, and so a state lawmaker, uh, Senator Warren Peterson from Gilbert, a Republican, had asked the attorney general's office to investigate whether Bisbee was in violation of another state law, which prohibits cities from having laws that conflict with, with state law. And the legislature, um, I guess, can, legis- lawmakers can ask the attorney general to investigate whether cities are in conflict with that. Um, so the AG looked into Bisbee's ordinance, and, he, and Attorney General Mark Burnovich determined that the city was in violation, and the threat was that Bisbee had 30 days to repeal its ordinance or they would lose some state-shared revenue. Um, so ultimately, the city caved because they were afraid they, they could, couldn't do without that money. So this is a financial decision that they made. It was about $2 million, about a quarter of their annual budget, correct? Yeah, that's correct, a quarter of their budget. Um, and, you know, the mayor t- told me that that would have been a death sentence from this, for that city because it is so small. But it's sort of the ideological fight behind this, Bisbee tends to be a, a little more liberal community. Is that probably a fair assessment. Yeah, that's correct. And often it is more progressive, liberal-leaning communities throughout the state that are having this local control fight with the Republican-dominated legislature. And so why do they hate plastic bags? <laughs> so um, Warren Peterson, um, you know, the, the senator who asked the attorney general to investigate Bisbee, he also um, championed this this legislation that prohibits, the, you know, ban, bag bans. Um, and his argument was that this is a matter of economic liberty, that these sort of laws um, create extra costs for small businesses, and they can create kind of an inconsistent patchwork of local regulations that just inhibits business growth, in his view. So, Mary Jo, you, you've watched this probably over the course of several years because this, these types of uh, fights have been going on between the legislature and, and the local governments. I mean, is this going to lead to where basically legislature is the de facto local government, too? You mean, welcome to the city of Arizona? Yes. <laughs> um, possibly. I mean, I think it will be very interesting to watch and see what kind of legislation comes up in 2018 that might be tailor-made to set up a challenge. And I will say that the underlying law that was passed several years ago that says if you don't conform, we take away your state-shared revenue, that's just a potent, potent weapon that the legislature can use. No city is going to give up that money. Every year they fight to make sure that it's still retained. And I will point out that what they call state-shared revenue, that's money that the cities get because a long time ago they agreed that they would not levy their own um, property tax 
I'm sorry, income tax. So this is in lieu of the cities imposing an income tax. They get a cut of what the state collects. And this is the sort of thing that the states grumble about considerably about Washington, that they hate the way that federal funds are tied to ideas that they don't want to support or would like to modify. And, and they talk about, uh, you know, local control and, and small government, and yet uh, the... They invert it when it uh, suits them, it seems. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Ron, you got to go read your Constitution, as we hear over and over at the legislature. You know, the relationship between the federal government and the state government, you know, is one thing. It's but between state government and local government, it's different. So uh, there uh, <laughs> and cities uh, are a division of the state. You know, they have they you know, they have to bow to that power. There's a big exception there for charter cities, and I think that's probably where you'll see some challenges. But it is this, the same tension you do see nationally where uh, rural areas are way over, overrepresented, say, in the, represented in the Electoral College, where a voter in, in Wyoming is basically counts for three votes compared to someone in, say, Florida or California, where you get, you know, people who tend to be more conservative cities tend to be more liberal. Uh, and it does raise questions about that old, you know, does the government closest to people govern best? Uh, Dustin, where is this headed? Is there any kind of legal challenge in the work? Yeah, I mean, I don't think the cities are done fighting this. Um, Bisbee Mayor, Mayor David Smith told me that the town is building a legal war chest. They're getting uh, offers of assistance from various legal groups around the country that want to help them fight this law. And, you know, they're considering if they get enough help that they're going to file a lawsuit against the state. Um, but just more broadly, cities across Arizona and across the country are gearing up to fight the, you know, this preemption issue. They're tired of being preempted by state legislatures when they pass more progressive laws at the local level. Um, and a handful of city officials from around the state, um, council members in Tucson, Tempe, Phoenix, and Flagstaff recently had an op-ed in our paper um, announcing that they had joined a, local, a national campaign with other um, local leaders across the country to fight this. Mary Jo, an insurance program that insures children in lower income families has run out of funding. What's going on? It ran out of funding because Congress did not renew what's called the Children's Health Insurance Program. That provides money for Arizona's program, which is called Kids Care locally. Um, we understand that the state had enough money left over uh, to tide them over until later this month, maybe into early December. But when that's spent, it's gone, and 23,000 23, children would be kicked out of health care coverage. So this is a problem coming from D.C. What's interesting is that everybody believes that Congress will get around to funding this. There have been bills in the House and the Senate, but it hasn't happened yet. And the deadline is nearing, and the state program needs to notify these families give them 30-day notice if they're going to get kicked off. Do we know why that hasn't happened, Ron? This is one of the many um, items on Congress's to-do list that uh, came up in September as the end of the fiscal year approached, and 
They had to do budgets. They had to raise the debt ceiling. They had to deal with the hurricane aftermath in Houston and then later in Puerto Rico. Um, This was just part of that, you know, train wreck of unfinished legislative business. And I think it's also coming on the heels of the federal or the the Republican-led health care reforms. There was some sense that maybe some of these things could be tied together uh, and handled in one sort of uh, overarching package, but also be part of bargaining to try and get a, a better deal. Um, and so I suspect that this is something that will be taken up. The The deal that they made in September kind of kicked the can down the road into maybe December. So you may see Congress have to readdress this at that time with a continuing resolution, or uh, maybe they'll actually solve a problem uh, for once. And, and Michael, to your question about why the state hasn't issued that notice, I think they don't want to whipsaw people that are in this program. I think they're holding on as long as they can hoping the dollars stretch enough and maybe Congress will act. Meantime, um, I understand that the governor's office is looking at some stopgap moves that they could take to at least fill in some money so nobody gets kicked off. But at the end of the day, that's, they're still depending on Congress to renew the program so they can then reimburse whatever their stopgap program is. So we've seen the governor get involved in a couple of kind of high-profile debates in Washington, uh, repeal of the Affordable Care Act, which failed, but he was on the phone lobbying uh, our senators, McCain and, and Senator Flake, and then uh, Vice President Pence was in town talking about this uh, tax package um, that uh, is being debated currently in Congress, and Doug Ducey was right there by his side, and they were uh, pitching it to local business folks. Have we seen him make a similar pitch on, on this thing, Mary Jo? No. I have put a request in for any correspondence that he might have had with Congress. I understand a letter is going out this week. I don't know if it's the first one that he has sent to them. And when asked about it, the governor says, oh, no, no, we've been working with Congress. Well, you know, why aren't you talking about this? And his office says, well, because everybody knows that this is going to get resolved, so there's no need to weigh in publicly. But you got to think that if you've got 23,000, you know, low-income kids that could lose their health care and then that could cause other problems like, you know, more child welfare issues, that you might want to be talking that up a little bit. Well, in the article you wrote about this, you did mention that that they could have an impact on the foster care system. Can you explain why that is? Well, if, if your kid's sick and you can't get health coverage for them, things can start to fall apart in a family that might already be living a little bit on the edge. You know, these are lower income families. So it just adds to stress. And as we know, the major reason kids are removed from homes is for some level of neglect, you know, and you can, that's defined pretty broadly. So the fear is that, or the belief is that the more you can keep families healthy and thriving and Um, you'll keep them out of the foster care system. So, uh, Ron, you can probably back me up on this, but the list of things that Congress knows it should do or is (laughs) anticipated to do is very long, but uh, not necessarily always uh, done. Right. And the deal with, uh, you know, the budget and the debt ceiling and all that, um, there's been some disagreement uh, from the Senate Majority Leader and um, the uh, Democrats who made the deal with uh, President Trump in September to sort of kick the can down the road as to when they're going to take some of these things up again. And so it's it's not clear when these things will be taken up, what the you know basic shape of it will be. Uh, and right now it's probably all taking a backseat to the tax cut uh, issues. 
Ron, last week we talked extensively about Senator Jeff Flake's announcement that he wouldn't run for re-election and sort of the surprise that that was and, and him laying out all the reasons why, because he didn't think he could win, uh, because the Republican Party had become so aligned with uh, President Trump that there really wasn't a spot for him to, to run with uh, what he said to be integrity. Since then, uh, as you would expect, there have been a lot of people sizing up this suddenly open Senate seat. Those don't happen very often. What have we heard lately? You reported on a meeting among House members. What came of that and what else is going on? Yeah, so the state's congressional delegation, the Republican members, met. There are five of the nine overall House members uh, are Republicans. They met in Washington last week to discuss basically who's interested in this, what what is uh, the lay of the land in, in that regard. And out of that brief meeting, uh, they confirmed that Martha McSally uh, from the Tucson area is interested in, and Paul Gosar from the Northwestern Arizona district also, uh, expressed an interest in it. The meeting was cut short because of the house, uh, voting calendar required them to take action on the overall federal budget. Um, so this was not a long meeting. I don't know that that would have changed anything. Ultimately, it wasn't going to decide who was going to be the, the person who emerged from the delegation as, as, entering. And there's really nothing that would prevent both Gosar and McSally from running if they were so inclined. Were you surprised that they held that meeting? Or was that something that you would kind of expect these these people are trying to kind of sing from the same page of music? I'm a little surprised that they met just formally to to do it. I'm actually slightly heartened that they feel the need to sort of get on the same page. But um, it, it it's something that they, they did really sort of to clarify their own thinking and, and those kinds of conversations would have been occurring regardless. And, and rather than do it, uh, cutting it five different ways, they decided to do it all at once, I think, and, and sort of clear the air. Ron, aside from potential candidates coming from our congressional delegation, um, are there other Republicans that are testing the water? Yeah, so there's a lot of names being floated around. Um, one of the more prominent ones, I think, is uh, Matt Salmon, the former congressman, who is um, you know, certainly very conservative by reputation and, and his voting record and recent in Washington and, you know, as somebody who can also make a credible claim to being sort of an independent-minded uh, conservative in the mold of Kelly Ward and her sort of insurgent approach to uh, dealing with Washington these days. Um, there are others, though. Jay Hyler has already formed an exploratory committee. Um, there are other names like former Congressman uh, John Shattig, who are toying with the idea of entering the race uh, from a more establishment perspective. What, how, how would that change? I mean, I, I look at the names, and I don't see how they in any way solve Jeff Flake's problem. If Kelly Ward is Donald Trump in this race, and Donald Trump is where the Republican Party is, where do you jump in? Right. I, I think that's going to be the dilemma that Martha McSally has to reconcile before she decides whether she will ultimately take the plunge on this. Yeah, and, and I guess we should just interject for people who aren't familiar with her. I mean, she represents Tucson and southern Arizona, so it, she's maybe not be a household name among a lot of Metro Phoenix folks. But former uh, Air Force uh, fighter pilot, I mean, highly regarded by the Republican leadership as someone who's like this potential rising star, they've, they've put her in positions where she could succeed. They've helped her get a lot of legislation moving, uh, really a kind of uncharacteristic for someone who's been in Congress, uh, you know, for the short amount of time that she has. That's right. She's in her second term and she's already a subcommittee chair 
uh, that is not something that uh, they hand a chair's gavel over to you just because they like you. They they see some promise in her. She's ironically she's got uh, by uh, at least one measure the most Donald Trump supportive voting record in our congressional delegation right now. This is something that uh, really kind of hampers her in her re-election bid for her Tucson-based district, but is not nearly conservative enough, apparently, for a Republican primary that would be statewide. That's a good point about her voting record, but it, as I read it, on some of the more controversial issues, which have not yet come up for a vote, or that sort of just float out there in the political atmosphere, she's been very ambivalent. And um, you could not align her with Trump on things like um, immigration, uh, Planned Parenthood funding, for example. Right. And McSally has been, uh, has made comments uh, on two occasions that are pretty memorable at this point uh, for discussing with bankers uh, sort of um, her view of the landscape in, in some comments that were interpreted as hostile to the White House or at least not uh, fully supportive. Um, she also made comments, uh, a profane remark, just before the Republicans uh, set out to pass the health care bill that did pass the House. This is something that doesn't serve her well in her pretty evenly divided Tucson district. The banker's remarks is something that doesn't really help her in her statewide primary uh, race. So, again, she's kind of been caught uh, between and betwixt uh, and all these things, and it's really cast a, a cloud over her political future. There was also a story last week that suggested that she's really, she hates the House uh, and wants to go to the Senate uh, in part because she just doesn't like being in the House. Now we're into November. Like, how long can this drag out? By what point does someone really have to be in the race if they're going to mount uh, a legitimate campaign? Realistically, I think that um, I've heard from at least one insider that decisions have to be made by Thanksgiving. That's a few weeks from now. That would seem the longest stretch you can imagine. I think more realistically, you can expect to see some movement in the next few days. By the end of this week, we may have a better sense as to who's in and who's out. I think the fact that McSally has not already declared is an interesting uh, reflection of the situation that she must see for herself. At the same time, I think that Matt Salmon, uh, I know, has been considering this pretty closely and, and is already taking more time on this than what uh, we might have expected for him, for somebody who really so sort of swore off Washington when he left Congress last year, uh, to see him on the fence with this and, and leave it dangling out there for this long is also sort of uh, an interesting insight into how seriously he must be considering this position. And there are a lot of other names who are out there and, and sort of waiting to see what those two figures decide to, to see what that might auger for them. For a final segment, what are you watching for, Mary Jo Pitzel? Um, I'm trying to understand why Arizona never responded when the U.S. Senate uh, Finance Committee sent out requests looking for information on uh, foster care systems. They issued a big old report last month. 
there's nothing in there about Arizona except that they didn't respond. How many other states responded? All of them? No, I think Arizona's one of 17. So I do not yet know if there is a red-blue pattern there, but I mean, we're a Republican state. It's a Republican U.S. Senate. Interesting. Ron? Uh, I want to see what the, this week brings in terms of uh, any clarity on who's en- entering that Senate race. Um, this could have an impact on, for example, Martha McSally's Tucson district um, in the House. That's a very fiercely fought seat, and Republicans may be caught flat-footed trying to uh, compete in a seat that they thought was theirs. And obviously, Kirsten Sinema is already in the Senate race. Uh, we continue to see uh, uh, speculation as to who might jump in on that one. Also, Republicans are at least signaling a bit of anxiety and, and interest in shopping around a bit in the first district. That's Tom O'Halloran's district in northeastern Arizona. So uh, we continue to see the uh, the political uh, bingo board shifting here. Dustin Gardner. I'm looking at did the Russians really try to hack Arizona. In September, uh, Secretary of State Michelle Reagan said that the state had been targeted by Russians. Um, then in October, she said that the feds couldn't confirm that, DHS couldn't confirm that. That left a lot of folks scratching their heads. It looks like we're going to finally have some answers, and it might not be what you expect. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Gaggle Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at MG Squires. I'm at Dustin Gardner, Gardner with an I. At Mary J. Pitzel, P-I-T-Z-L. You can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. Thanks to the politics team. Our production team is Jojo Huckaba, Haley Sanchez, and Kayla White. Please subscribe to the show. Please, please. I can't beg you enough. And review it on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. See you next week. Thank you.